Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the very special Sunday mailbag edition. Uh, Andrew, I'm kind of want. This always feels like, you know, do you watch Hey, I Ate Saturday when you were a kid? I'm sure you do. <laughs> Yeah, of course. You know how used to introduce Red Faces, the segment we all loathe but you all love? I kind of feel like I need to throw a bit of that at the beginning, the old John Blackman uh, Red Faces intro. Anyway, the Andrew I'm speaking to, of course, is Andrew Page from strawman.com. I am Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, and I'm wondering, what is Strawman again, Andrew? Oh, you're still doing this, aren't you? <laughs> Um, oh, way past the, the point of stop being funny. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a father. It's what I'm supposed to do, mate. Oh, man. <laughs> We're a website. And the best way to investigate a website is to just go check it out. It's strawman.com. We're an investment club. If you're interested in stocks and you want to share some ideas, come check us out. I reckon business must be good when you're like, oh, I'm not going to bother telling you what it is. Just check it yourself. <laughs> I've I got more customers than I need, baby. I'm swimming in cash. How hard can this be? Do you know what? I've, I've found that the... <laughs> You, we've gotten a really high caliber investor for exactly not doing that. Yeah, right. <laughs> because if you really care and you're that yeah, kind of investor yeah, yeah. that's into it, you kind of seek us out. So yeah. it's sort of, if it's that's not for you, it's not for you, and it's not for most people. So I'm not, I'm not going to push it. Nice, mate. We are going to do our mailbag. I got some exciting news. Our audio engineer par excellence link. Um, so you had to me the other day. Hey, you know what? If you guys want to take audio questions from your audience. We can kind of patch that in. We can kind of make it all work and, and slot them in in between the bits of audio so that your listeners can actually ask their own questions and ask them, well, not live on air, but we can play their questions live on air. So, mate, that's what we're going to do. That's cool. We're going to give it a go anyway. We'll give it a go uh, when we get some questions. We'll see how it works. If it doesn't work out for audio quality reasons or it's too hard for the audio guys, we might stop it again. So no promises. Uh, but we will give it a red-hot go. If you have a question for us, we have plenty of socials and I'll share those with you in a minute. But if you want to... Take an audio recording. Just grab your, your iPhone or your Pixel phone or your Android phone. Go to the voice recorder or voice memo app. It'll be called, if by now, by the way, you've already decided it's too hard, that's okay. We'll still take questions the old way, so don't freak out. But if you are someone who is technically savvy enough to find the voice recorder or the voice memo app or whatever it is called on your phone, and you want to record a, a quick-ish question, make it, make it sort of, you know, 20, 30 seconds, I suppose, no longer than that for us, um, and ask us a question. We're gonna we'll try playing that question on air, and we'll answer it directly. So that's our that's our plan. Uh, thanks again to Link, our audio guru, who's who makes us sound better than we otherwise would. I won't say great because he's only you know you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, <laughs> but he makes us sound as good as we possibly can, and he's happy to give it a go. So if you got a question, record it using the voice memo, voice recorder, whatever it's called on your phone, and then email it to info at fool.com.au. That's info i n f o at fool.com.au and we'll trial answering some of those questions on air. So there you go, there's that. We have the usual way. So let's go through those while we're here. You can submit a written question as always on that same email address, info at fool.com.au. You can hit us up on the socials. Now, we don't tend to direct questions to the podcast to Andrew, so I'll give you his socials in a minute. But while we're on the questions piece, uh, best ways to go are to send them to me via Twitter or Instagram at tmfscottp. Or you can hit me up on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash scottphillipsmoney. So those are the best places to get your questions to us. On top of that, though, you should follow us on the socials. You can follow me on all of those handles, as the cool kids call them. You follow The Motley Fool on Twitter and Insta at The Motley Fool AU or The Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. You can follow Andrew, and you should, at sage underscore simian. Um, I haven't made a joke about that being Smart Monkey for a while, so here you go. Smart Monkey, apparently, for some reason. I'm still not sure. Uh, although, Andrew, you were you were, you were were advised recently you could change that handle and nah, you've still chosen with it. not to out of... No. Nah. Is, is, that, is that commitment? Is it is it, uh, is it just pure bastardry right now? You're, just, you're not going to do it no matter what? What's, just what's stubbornness, there? yeah. Stubbornness, no, there we go. Doubling right. down, yeah. Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest, which is the Strawman Twitter account. So there you go. If you, want to, if you want to get in touch with us, do that. If you want to send us a question, we look forward to our first audio questions coming in the next seven days or so. So I'm not sure when we'll have them uh, live on the episode, depending on when they come in. It might be next week. It might be the week after. Um, just do me a favour too. The audio quality needs to be pretty good for us to play it. Otherwise, the um, the audio gurus will, will not, not cope. So um, uh, just, yeah, try, try and give us a good, good audio quality. It doesn't have to be spectacular or anything. Just, you know, make sure it's good enough for broadcast. If it's not, we won't be able to do it. We'll try and grab some of those we can't broadcast and ask them as verbal questions anyway. I'll, I'll probably read or write down and then read out the question. But um, yeah, we'll try and we'll try and audio them if we can. Here try we go, not, try not to be like oh. Trump and stand next to a wearing helicopter whenever you're trying to say something is what we're saying. 
Mate, if that was the least reason to be like Trump, I'd be happy. That's probably the 85th of defending some Trump fans now. Sorry. Well, I'm not sorry, really. No. Here we go. Question from Dave. Dave's a regular correspondent. Uh, Dave, for those who remember the story, was actually the uh, author of the story to David Gardner that I've read on this podcast before and I've written about uh, about saving more of his money as he got pay increases, which is a fantastic story. If you haven't read it, uh, look up uh, look up uh, my Facebook page. It's probably the best place to see that, that story. Uh, put a couple of weeks ago I wrote about it, so have a look at that. Anyway, Dave says, so now that I have been branded a pedant for pointing out the difference between mean and average and median. Yeah, sorry, Dave. <laughs> that, was, that was my, uh, I wasn't talking about Dave specifically. Sorry, Dave, if you felt they were uh, being targeted. I was just making the point that when I say 90% of us think we're above average drivers, it's possible because of maths that I won't bother going into. But he is right, of course, and I did make that point. But I asked the pedants to just hold back their criticism. Dave is either, uh, either happily or unhappily uh, not happy about the fact he had to hold back that criticism, but let's go with that. He says, uh, now I have been branded a pedant for pointing out the difference. This observation can be easily dismissed. And then he goes on, your last mailbag. Another Dave asked if you knew of a product or strategy that would beat the market by a couple of points or more. From a discussion that, I, that ensued, I believe the answer is no, we don't. Although I agree it would be hard for you uh, to do as an individual, I believe you could do it. As you point out, one would have to remove a number of them unless you felt, for example, banks and miners were in your discard pile. One strategy I can see play out in Motley Fool Caps. Now, this is a Motley Fool US uh, website, so I'm not going to go into huge detail, but basically he says, by some of the top-rated players is to short penny stocks. So I guess that is a strategy if you have the stomach for doing it with real money. In the end, the key is to find good stocks and hold them rather than to cull out the bad ones. I feel one of the best examples is David Gardner's five-stock samples and his uh, Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Uh, I believe he's done 30 of them and 27 or so are beating the S&P. Um, so I think it's a it's a good point, mate. It was, you know, we, we absolutely think we, you can beat the market by picking stocks. The question from the other Dave was, is there an ETF available? Could you do an ETF and just kind of take out by everything but the bad ones? I'm still not sure, Dave, it's possible to do, mate, because those penny stocks can't really be shorted with real money, uh, particularly in the Australian market where the derivatives market's quite small. And I still don't know that I'd, want to recommend a whole lot of people do it. You've kind of got to do it en masse if you're going to do it at all. Um, so I take your point, mate. It is There are ways that theoretically it's doable. I'm not entirely sure it's doable in, in, in fact. Do you have a different view, Andrew? No, but I would... Look, there's there's this thing called the market and there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat. And I, <laughs> I used to be, I used to be as a younger man, I used to be quite mm-hmm. ideological about... Yeah. You don't do it that way. This is the way that you do it. <laughs> and as I've matured, I just don't care, you know. If, but I do. Yeah. I, I do what you do. You do you, right? Yeah. But my urging would be just have a very clear strategy of what mm. you are doing, yeah. and contrast that against other approaches that are out there. I mean, you want the one that's the the, the easiest <laughs> and the lowest effort with the highest payoff, <laughs> yeah. and and most backed yeah. by the uh, yes. the uh, the evidence, I, I suppose. So, yeah. um, I think a lot of investors get into trouble when they they get very reactionary. Mm-hmm. They get very mix and match. Oh, this is a deep value. I'm going to buy that. Oh, it's a hyper growth mm-hmm. stock. I'm going to get into that one. Oh, this is a bit on the nose. I'm going to short that. It's kind of a bit over the place. The best investors tend to understand mm-hmm. the approach that fits best with their persona and mm-hmm. and psychology and and really focus on on that area knowing by the way that not all approaches work in all market environments and whatever you choose you're going to have periods of underperformance but but just yeah uh it's not an approach i would take put it that way yeah yeah makes sense um i yeah i think that's right i think look you know and dave's the other dave's question was basically is there is there an etf style approach you could do by basically kind of buying the market and taking out the crap stuff rather than trying to just find the good stuff in, in a more approachable way if you if you know and I, like i like the question is absolutely right right if you could systemically do it and have some sort of structured product that did it for you um you know i i, I actually agree with you. it'd be a great way to try and beat the market if you mm. thought it could be done reliably and you could get a structure to do it rather than have to pick our own stocks and assemble our own 180 stock portfolio living at the worst 20 companies for example um, and still get the market return plus a bit that would be a, a really smart way to try and do it um i, I don't know that it's um that, that it's doable dave's right the other option is obviously to pick you know theoretically to, to short penny stocks, which is, again, in American uh, terms, the, the rubbish stuff, which, again, is kind of the same idea. You can't really do it in Australia. You can't really do it any other way. Uh, but I, I, I take the point. But Dave, Dave also uh, throws uh, another question or comment at us. He says, I enjoyed the segment on the 62-year-old who did not like the standard advice for old codgers. The pedant in me used to get upset with this wisdom. 
But then this is this. I like Dave's point. He said, but then I decided. Well, I was fortunate that this advice was not applicable. I try to maintain ten percent of my investable wealth in cash. This covers about five years of expenses not covered by pensions and social security. When the market goes up, so that I have less than eight percent cash, I sell some to get back to ten percent. If it drops so the cash is more than thirteen percent, I go out and buy. Keep up the good work. Uh, I'll, I'll finish there. Actually, I'll, I'll go to the next one in a second. Um, I, I quite like that idea, mate, because it's mm. kind of it is to some degree. Um, you know, he's kind of almost kind of not exactly hedging the market, but he's you know selling a bit when when shares are up, so the cash is falling, and he's buying a bit back when the cash goes up and, and things are going away. So I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it's one way of kind of taking you know kind of taking the tops and bottoms out of out of your your volatility as well as make sure you've got enough cash to live. So I quite like that. And I do, I think his point was right about you know some, having having <laughs> having good opportunities for, for for those things. It's one of those first class problems, right? Do I have enough? Do I have enough uh, money? Is is I take enough risk? Uh, to Dave's point, he doesn't have to ma- have that uh, make that choice, but it's a it's a reasonable point to make. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Last I, one he I, says. I like okay. Yeah. Last one he says. Keep up the good work. And I have one question. I know what the good oil means, but what is its derivation? So the good oil is the the, the other podcast that I do. It's called the Good Oil with Scott Phillips, which I. I, mate, I shiver every time I say it, but I have to say it because that's the name of the podcast and the boffins tell me we have to put with Scott Phillips because it's searchable that way. Uh, otherwise, there's other good oil podcasts out there. So there you go. We're stuck with it. Uh, I promise you it wasn't my idea. Um, I had a look at this. I can't find an honest derivation as in like the specific uh, origins of it specifically. What I do know is its use goes back, believe it or not, to the First World War. It's actually the first reference that I could find, uh, ANU, the university, see, I told you we do research around here, mate, Hmm. Um, did some research on the phrase, 1915 was the first time they could see it in print. Um, And uh, it talks about the soldiers. Uh, Allies commenced to pinch themselves to make sure they were really under fire. They'd been disappointed so often, now they could hardly believe they had the real thing. I heard one man say, uh, said of the dinkum oil at last, no more furfies. And that was the feeling all round. My 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 view would generally be whether they're referring to the opposite of snake oil, which might be a nice distinction. We all know the snake oil idea, as in you know the kind of fake stuff. The dinkum oil is the real stuff. I assume that's where it comes from. It's been a phrase that's been in Australian use for more than 100 years. Again, 1915 there. Um, the good oil specifically was used first in 1918 in the Gippsland Times in uh, in sale in Victoria. Um, so the same the same thing. So there you go. I don't know the specific reason why it became. Uh, you know, a, a term that's used in, in general speech, but at least at least a century old, so I'll, I'll take that one. Hmm. But let's go to a question from, where have we got here? Um, Nick. Nick says, hi, Scott and Andrew. I, oh, this is, by the way, you, you'll like this one, Rand. This is great. Uh, it's, a, it's a two-part email for, for good reason. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I love the pod. I listen to it religiously. I really loved some of your book suggestions from a few months ago. I've been working through them. If you haven't read it already, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, a former fool no less, says Nick, is amazing. I haven't read that, believe it or not. I haven't read a lot of books recently, but I hear very good things and I would mm. recommend The Psychology of Money without even reading it because Morgan Housel is a wonderful writer and I'm absolutely sure it's a great book. So I, I would, I, I, I don't think I get it other than Warren Buffett, I don't think I'd ever recommend something unread, um, but I can I can absolutely confidently recommend The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel and Nick's, uh, Nick's also confirmed that. I've got a boring macro question, he says, but I wonder if you could explain something about interest rates and market volatility for me. It's Wednesday, the 29th of September. So there you go. Well, that's dating the, dating the email from a couple of weeks ago. And the ASX and US markets have had a bit of a bad week with lots of commentators talking about what the Fed might do over the next few months and the effect it has on treasury bond yields. For example, Stephen Bartholomew's from the SMH was referring to rises in the 10-year bond rates moving from 1.3% to 1.54%. Broadly, says Nick, I understand what they're on about. Money moves out of stocks and into bonds to chase safer returns. But if that's true, why do many of the declines in share price come from the growth or techier end of the share market rather than the more stable, slow growth stocks like banks or utilities? I'd understand moving your money from low growth dividend stocks into treasury bonds because you're chasing yield without the volatility, but that's not where the big price declines are. Why are... <laughs> This is where it's funny, mate. Why are foolish or snowmanish type stocks <laughs> being punished just because people are chasing one and a half percent yields? Surely, excuse me. Surely institutions aren't really selling off their high growth tech shares to move into bonds. So what's happening? 
<clears throat> I know it shouldn't bother me, but sometimes it's hard not to feel personally victimised by bond investors every time a central bank holds a press conference. <laughs> Full on from Nick. Now, Nick, I, I have to say, the Nick emailed the next day uh, to, to our Zoe from our member services team. Hi, Zoe. Thanks so much for passing that on. But I woke with a start this morning. I made a terrible mistake. I made a reference to straw man in my question, but I called it snowman. <laughs> it might be too late, he says, but please pass my apologies on to Andrew. For context, I was asking why high growth stocks, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he says, uh, one of the high growth stocks of mine that has taken a beating is called Snowflake. So when I typed the email out, I had Snowflake on the brain and said <laughs> snowman rather than straw man. Sorry again, Andrew. I really like your website. I have to thank you and your site for a few ideas that have made their way into my portfolio. Oh, cool. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Regards, Nick. I, just, I thought <laughs> totally that, that was cool. fun. Totally Good cool. Nick. That, that was fun. Look, hey, he's uh, using your site, mate, and he's giving you a rap, so that's, that's got to be good. Yeah. That's worth being, you know, as I say, better to be better to be called incorrectly and not thought of at all, right? So Exactly. That's a win. That's a win. We kind of talked about this on Friday, mate, the, the volatility thing, but I, mm. I guess I wanted to ask the question specifically because he kind of points to the, the, the elephant in the room that we really didn't talk about on Friday, which is, okay, so... Treasury bonds go up. You know, shares are relatively less attractive compared to bonds in a relative sense. Still more attractive in our view, but you know, the, the, every time bond yields go up, they, they, the, the gap closes a little bit. Why is it that the high growth stuff that's in theory, as, as Nick said, no, no one's selling shares in Snowflake to buy T-bonds, right? So mm. what's actually going on? Well, firstly, price is determined on the margin, as they say. So there's a gazillion shares in BHP out there. If on a particular hypothetical mm. day, no one trades, but I sell you my shares for one cent each. That's yeah. that's the price, you know. And most people so have done true, nothing. Right? <laughs> the entire company gets valued on the price you and I swap our shares for. So when we say the market price, that is the last trade that occurred, mm. and it's mm. very, very, very likely to be very similar to the price that occurred just before that, uh, <laughs> but not always, and doesn't have yep. to be. So it's sort yep. of it's, so you can you, and that's why illiquid stocks are so volatile mm. as well because mm. there's not much trade going through. So it's sort of they it, it can swing around. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing from a more mathematical bent is that by definition, growth stocks, the majority of their earnings are well out into the future. Mm, mm. So they might not even be earning anything at the moment. In fact, it might be negative cash flow at this stage, <laughs> yeah. but the cash is going to start to gush in after 2028 mm. or something something like that. Mm. So when you start lifting interest rates and, and by extension, those discount rates, the rate yeah. at which you discount those future earnings, future earnings get hit a lot harder than the near term, uh, far distant earnings get hit far yes. harder than the near term earnings. So something like a Woolies is just earning whatever, you know, over hundreds of millions each year. Mm. They're, they're earning good money now. And yes, they'll be hopefully earning more in the future, but it's not a big difference. So the way that the maths works mm. is that just that the, because the valuation is predicated on adding up all of these discounted cash flows and because mm. most of them are often the future for growth stocks and most of them are being, and they are now being discounted at a much heavier rate, the maths just works out that they, they tend to get get punished. So that's that's the sort of the the academic answer, but but also probably because um, you know they they are much harder to value. That they, they, they there is more uncertainty, and probably investors, as a general rule, are more skittish around growth stocks as well. So when there are bits of falls and stuff, maybe maybe you tend to get a bit more of a, an overreaction. But that's 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 my um, uh, best guess. But yeah, I, like Nick, don't worry about it. Yep. <laughs> and it's a Half lovely the summary, mate. I really like the summary. I love the the. Um the conversation about the discounted cash flow. The reason cash is worth less in the future, by the way, is you've got to give up multiple years of potential return to wait for it. Yeah. So if we take the proverbial $100 today, if I want a 10% return per year, then I'm only going to pay $90 for $100 in a year's time. Mm. Right? Makes sense. If I'm going to wait two years for it, well, that's two years of 10% I'm missing out. So I'm going to pay $80 for that 100 bucks. And effectively, so what that means is by the time you earn that $100 in two years' time, it's worth $80 to you today. Mm. And so on and so forth. So if, as Andrew says, if you're making no profit for the next five years, and then you finally make $100 profit in year five, the $100 by the time you compound in reverse, the way kind of credit card debt gets you, that $100 in year five is probably worth $40 today. Mm. And so as Andrew says, the longer you've got to wait, uh, and the more, the, the more discounting it has anyway, but if the rate is higher, then that $40 all of a sudden worth only $30 or $20 mm. rather, than, rather than $40, rather than $100. And so you can see how that would quickly go away. Whereas if you're getting $100 this year, and 80, 90 next year, and 80, then eventually 40, the impact of that 40, the, the fifth year is still important because you, you will have got you know four or five times that much between now and then. The impact of that last year, the fifth year, mm. is not very much compared to Woolies total earnings per now and then. But if you're not going to earn profit until then, that's all that matters. <laughs> so that's why there's a, a bigger swing. I, I would add too, mate, just general, um, it, it's it's the stuff in between the two conversations. So it's 
you know, um, tre- treasury bonds are worth more, which in theory means rich rates are going to go up, which in theory means things like the economy might grow more slowly because of this. Mm. And so it's not, the, it's not that people go from uh, snowflake shares to treasury bonds, but they go, well, hang on, what the, what the Fed is flagging is business times will be tougher than I thought they would be. And so if I'm relying on an already, um, oh, it's a speculative, but, but you know, uh, higher risk business X years out, if the economic environment suddenly looks a bit, a bit less um, uh, accommodative, <laughs> to use the language, um, then I, I would do want to pay a bit less for that, almost by definition. And so there's also that uh, just straight out, the, the bit that's missing in between is what T-bills suggest, not, not just in terms of where the money goes, but how investors think about investing because of higher future rates. Is that, mm-hmm. is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Let's go to a question from uh, Rita this time. She says, hi, guys. My name is Rita. I have a question for the Motley Fool Money Podcast. You ready to come to the right place because this is the Motley Fool Money Podcast. I am in my mid-30s, says Rita. And for the, first, uh, for the last few years, I've been investing slowly and steadily. Fantastic. Due to a lack of time for in-depth research... I have largely relied on The Motley Fool. I'm a Gold Pass member, she says. And more recently, here you go, Strawman Premium for stock picks. And I now have a portfolio of close to 40 stocks, which I've only recently realised is the upper end of normal. Mm -hmm. Half my shares are for long-term investing, i.e. Solpats and Jumbo Interactive. I should say I'll disclose I own both of those. And half are high-growth small caps, which I believe need time for the investment thesis to bear fruit, i.e. EnviroSuite which I think you probably own, don't you? Up 10% as we speak. <laughs> there you go. So the majority of my picks I don't plan to sell anytime soon. I know you can't give personal financial advice, but my dilemma is this. I'm still going to regularly invest regardless of what the market does. Awesome. Well done, Rita. I would like to buy into new companies that I find interesting and exciting. However, unless I sell current stocks as I go, I'll have a much larger portfolio in five years. So what would you do? Would you keep reinvesting in the same companies you already own and dollar cost average? Would you force yourself to pick your most high conviction stocks, sell the rest and then buy new companies in the future? Or accept a larger portfolio and continue to buy new high quality companies a la Warren Buffett? If I'm aiming for 10 to 15 year time frame, is there a downside to what I'm doing now? Thanks for your time. And that's from Rita. That's a great question. Mate. Such a great question. Um, some interesting companies pick there too. Um, uh, <laughs> I, own, I own Jumbo as well for disclosure. Oh, nice. Thank you, mate. Um, look, it's one of those... Uh, this, we get, we get <laughs> no, a lot it? of questions here where it's just like people are just doing some really great things. And yeah, it's sort of yeah, like it's yeah. hard to sort of say, oh, you're doing that totally. Because you're not at all. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. hard to see how Rita's going to go too wrong in the future. We, we can yeah. sort of argue the toss over whether it could have been better or worse depending on this or that. And I guess we'll know in 10 to 15 years time what the optimum strategy would have been. <laughs> That's right. But it's, it's, I think generally speaking, I mean, what a, what a, what a great philosophy and process. Yeah. Keep buying, keep saving. Yeah. You know, we, we could, and I'll give some thoughts in a moment. Yeah. Maybe that is too many stocks to, to hold and, and all the rest of it, but Mm-mm. you're going to be okay. Right. With, I think with that approach. Yeah. That being said, um, I, I do tend to, uh, Try and dissuade people from over diversification. Um, mm-hmm. One is is that the, the great the great thing about diversification is it reduces risk, so it reduces your chance mm-hmm. of a big fall, but it also reduces your chance of big gains as well. Yeah. The, the, logically, think about it: the more diversified you get, Plus the two, more yep. you trend towards the market average, which is very fine. And except, as I said, it's hard to sort of fault because you're still going to mm-hmm. do reasonably well. Um, but it's also a lot of work for me. I'm pretty lazy as a person. It's a lot of stuff to keep, in, particularly in earnings season, there's a lot of companies mm. to keep up to date with. Mm. And the less familiar you become, so as you get to 40 and then 50 and then 60, gosh, that's, that is so many different mm. ideas and thoughts and things to monitor and keep in your head. It, it, it just gets very difficult <laughs> for me. Yeah, um, right. So, and I, and I tend to think you're going to get the full benefits of diversification at, well, you know, the academics argue, but let's call it somewhere between 20, 10 and 25 stocks, you know, around, mm. around mm. that level. Mm. Um, so I, I would very much prefer to, and I do, in fact, I only tend to sort of have uh, less than 15, 10 or 12, usually mm. at some point in time, in terms of the, the major weightings. Um, and, and I've used this analogy before, which I stole off Hamish Douglas, um, which is just to use the, the sporting team analogy. You, you only got to field 12 players at a time, put the 12 <laughs> best ones on there. Um, you obviously don't know which are, are going to be the 12 best ones, but I think every time there's a new decision to be made with allocating capital, <laughs> I just forget about the past. I've got a fresh bunch of cash here right now. Mm-hmm. What is the best thing to do with that? 
And yeah. I might change my mind if the thing that I think is the best thing to do is I already have a very high weighting in my portfolio or something like that. But I think, I think it's just a wonderfully um, simple and elegant mm. approach. What, who, is the, who is the best team to back right now and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and come at it from that angle? But, you know, don't overthink it at the same time. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to add something different rather than, rather than just say what he said, but effectively what he said. Um, I, think you've, I think you've pretty much nailed it, mate. I think that's, that is the important bit is, is, you know, being roughly right rather than precisely wrong. I would, I would hate to see someone sell down stocks just because they were trying to hit some arbitrary number. Mm. I, mean, be, I think it'd be a real shame, right, yep. to say, oh, I have 15, therefore I get rid of five. Um, now, if they're five duds, you might have improving the quality of your portfolio. There's real value in... in Pruning to some degree, to use a gardening analogy. I just spent a couple of weekends in a row doing my, that in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's value. There's value in pruning. On the flip side, forcing yourself into a you know, say, well, I really like six, company 16, 7, and eighteen, but I'm going to sell them because I've just decided to. Uh, I've said before, I'm pretty sure that at Share Advisor, the service that I run, we have a better result for me not trying to be too narrow. If you'd have asked me to get rid of all but the top fifteen ideas, say four years ago. Would I, would I have end up with the, the, the 15 that did best from that point? I don't know that I would. And not because I'm not I'm bad at this investing stuff. It turns out I'm, I'm reasonably okay at it. Um, but because that variability is that variability, right? And, and unnecessarily culling just, just for, the, for the arbitrary sake of it, I think is a, is a shame. I, I, I would say this. If you are, but I also wouldn't do what I think, and really we can't give you personal advice as you well know, but I wouldn't buy new just for the sake of buying new either. I wouldn't say, well, I want to buy some new exciting companies. So I'll buy some stuff to add to my portfolio. If you're a collector um, slash, slash hoarder, I won't say you're a hoarder reader, but you know, if you're someone who wants lots of stuff, there's no, there's no downside to that, right? If it's, it, you know, if it's a 17th, 18th, 19th company, then that's great. But the odds, and we have this conversation when we have a, at the moment we do a thing called a re-recommendation, right? So we occasionally, every month, we make a recommendation every month. Sometimes that's one we've already recommended before and we're saying, hey, buy some more of this. And people say, well, couldn't I have something new instead? And my general response kindly is, mate, there's 80 companies on the scorecard. Do you really want my 81st best idea? If I've, got, if I've got an idea that's better than that, do you really want me to go new for the sake of it rather than telling you that company X is a screaming buy and you should buy it? You mentioned Sol Pats. It's now at 40 bucks, done really, really well. Um, we re-recommended it at some point in the last few years. Uh, if we hadn't, so we might have reckoned something else. Might have done better, might have done worse. But I, I hope our members want our best ideas, not just our newest ideas. So I would, I would discourage you from buying new for the sake of new. Um, I think you want to buy best for the sake of best. Mm. And if you can organize that, and again, it's, it, it sounds trite to make that distinction, but if, if the best company you've got is one you already own, then buy some more of that, as long as the portfolio size is right, as Andrew said. If you can buy something new because it's better, then even better, great, do that as well. Um, the, the only thing about size I would just say is be careful you can stay on top of those stocks. If you've got 80, you can't really hope to follow them. And that's okay if, you, if you're literally hands-off, hey, I'm going to buy them and let them all just play out, then fine. But if you want to keep track of them every three to six months, having 80 companies is probably too hard. Now, maybe Strawman helps you, maybe the Motley Fool helps you, and that's okay too. If you know, if you're someone doing the work on your behalf and you can read their summaries, that's also completely fine. I would say that because <laughs> I work for the Motley Fool. But if, you, if you're, you know, literally, if you're following our advice or you, you're following the Strawman Index and that you're happy to do that, then as long as you believe in us and in Strawman, then again, you should go for it. Um, so that's kind of my, um, my, my general rule. You know, don't over-diversify for the sake of it. Don't under-diversify for the sake of it. Uh, make sure you can keep track of or someone's going to keep track of for you the companies you buy uh, and don't buy new just because they're new. Yep. Anything else on that, mate? No, we covered. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Question from Tim Sims says, G'day, Scott and Andrew. A question for the podcast, if I could. You can, Tim. Do you think ETF providers are ignoring the sovereign risk of China? On the ASX, there is no broad exposure uh, to an Asia X China ETF or an emerging markets X China ETF. Also, why is China even still an emerging market when it's the second largest economy in the world? <laughs> I know ETFs aren't necessarily in your wheelhouse, but any thoughts would be appreciated. Cheers, Tim. So yeah, look, there's, there's Asian ETFs out there. BetaShares does an Asian Tigers ETF. I own some units in that one, um, but it's, it's, it's Asia including China. Uh, emerging markets. Similarly, you can't get on the ASX emerging markets excluding China. And Tim's like, well, hang on, I, I think China's a risk. You know, shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't ETF providers give me a way to buy emerging markets without having to buy China on the way through? We'll answer why it's an emerging market in a minute, mate. But um, just sticking with the other one, do you think Andrew ETF providers are ignoring the risk of China? I, I was just thinking, I can't believe they haven't done that. 
Um, yes, I imagine. We've said before, that, you know, they're, they're in, in, yeah. it doesn't not necessarily nefarious, but I mean, they're, they're in the um, <laughs> business of making financial products, and if they feel yeah. as though there'd be enough investor yeah. demand for something <laughs> like right. that, they will package it up and sell it to you. And that's and, and right. look, that's that, right. that, that 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 could well be a win-win scenario. It absolutely could be. <laughs> so I'm just I'm actually su- yeah. surprised that they don't. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if something does mm. come along like that at some point in the next few years. Yeah. But I so I don't know why or what they're thinking. They probably just think there's not enough of an <laughs> appetite for it. Yeah. But I'm curious to hear your answer on why it's still an emerging market because I, <laughs> I read that as well and thought, well, yeah, that's a good question. So before I do, I'm going to go back to the ETF question again only for one more second. As an investor, so product manufacturer will make what they make. Do you, would you have, do you have a thought on whether you'd prefer an emerging markets ETF or an emerging markets ex-China ETF or an Asian ETF versus an emerging uh, Asia ex-China ETF? I mean, Tim's point is, in his view, I think he's saying, "Look, I think China's got sovereign risk, mm. and I think that means that these ETFs are not as attractive." He sounds like I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but it sounds like he would he would he would say, "Actually, if he, I actually love an ETF that didn't include China because I feel better about that without mm. the sovereign risk." Mm. Um, do, do you think investors, if both were available, would you have a preference for one or the other? How do you feel about the sovereign risk coming out of China? China's oh man, you, this is such a, a, a big <laughs> topic. On one hand, it is. It's this massive second largest, soon to be the largest mm-hmm. economy in the world. Yeah. Um, it's got some incredible success stories over there. Mm. You know, massive market. You know, it seems as and it's it's fast developing and it's growing at rates that the developed world just can only dream of. Yeah. Um, so for all of those, and you know, it's going to be the century of China, right? They're, they're, mm. There's a lot of momentum there, you know, they're, they're on their way. So it mm. seems on one hand, like, why wouldn't I want to invest in that? Yeah. But um, like Tim, I, I do think it's, it's just different in China. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a very different system. We've seen what's happened with some of the big tech companies. The state, the sovereign risk there is pretty substantial. They'll step in and, and do things just because they want to. Um, and I, I do think that is a risk. So I'm kind of torn between those two different competing ideas. Yeah. And then I also layer on top of that just my complete ignorance of <laughs> – I feel as though, you know, I, I'm big on this idea of in, staying in your, your wheelhouse, in your circle of competence. Yeah. And I'm just not a, I'm just not a China expert. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. So I find it like, where's my edge in investing in China? I mean, if it's this broad sort of exposure mm. to certain markets is one thing, but as a, as a stock picker, as an investor, where's my edge in that space? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for those reasons, I tend to stay away. Yeah. I, so I own, I own units in the Asian Tigers ETF. So I am exposed to China. I'm not, it's a small position relative to my total portfolio uh, and deliberately so. Um <sighs> So a couple of things. First thing for me, we'll get an emerging markets thing in a minute. First thing for me is it's tempting to look at only one side of the risk-reward schedule on any, on any investment, right? Sometimes we're led down that path. So is there some risk in China? Absolutely. Mm. Could that risk end up not coming to pass and the returns swamp that risk? Absolutely. Mm. And so I don't think it's necessarily the best place to go to say um, we are trying to always avoid risk. The question is always: Is the risk re- worth the reward? And I think that's so. That's a, that's an open one. Second thing on on ETFs is, in theory, an ETF. I've, I argue largely my my almost only way I want to invest in ETFs is, is completely passively. So I buy the Asian Tigers ETF because I want exposure to the Asian markets. Uh, I'm not making an active choice saying I would like the, I don't know, uh, pick pick something. Um, uh, I would like Japan X banks plus Malaysian retailers, less Singaporean uh, manufacturers, right? So it, that, that becomes an active choice all of a sudden. You're, you're, you're trying to pick winners. I, I'm, I, I bought the Asian Tigers ETF for, for passive exposure to Asia. And so if you start to say, well, I'd like passive exposure, but exclude that stuff, please, you, you're going to get closer and closer to an active investing decision. And you're welcome to do that, Tim. That's completely appropriate. Um, but but to my, to, in my view, um, to my, my general... Uh, preference is to be passive in the ETF. So I, I'm not super keen to ignore or exclude China. Thirdly, mate, I agree with you, Andrew, in terms of both the risk and the potential reward. I expect that in the next, I think I said this before on the podcast, I expect in the next 10, 15 years, two or three of the world's top 20 companies are Chinese mm. and probably one of them is Indian mm. because these are dramatically growing, very, very large economies with very, very large population bases. And it almost, 
it, it, it almost defies probability to imagine that wouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. If you think that 17 of the biggest companies-ish, I don't know the actual numbers, are American right now, is that really likely to continue? Is that is that the natural way of things? I don't think so. I don't think there's any reason to believe that necessarily needs to be true moving forward just because it is the case now. Um, so there's that. Um, I that, that's my that's my general that's my general take. So I wouldn't exclude China on that basis if you're being passive about it. Is there risk? Yes. Do I think the Chinese government will do whatever it wants to do to suit itself? Absolutely. Um, is it possible that investors lose out because China cut off? access to foreign to, to capital markets for foreigners, uh, nationalise the companies, take our shares. Yeah, those things are all absolutely possible. That's why my exposure is only small. Um, I don't necessarily buy into the China must be the devil incarnate, must always be the worst thing in the world and you can't possibly make money doing it. I, I don't strongly take that view nor do I strongly oppose the alternative view, but I'm not entirely sure it's super likely that um, that the outcome's going to be as good or as bad as anyone predicts at each end of the spectrum. So well, Charlie, if Charlie I'm gonna, is pretty heavily invested in China. He's huge ball in China. Mm. Um, Berkshire Hathaway owns BYD, the battery company as well, battery tech company. Um, so yeah, look, I, 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 don't, I don't have a strong view. I have, I have strong views on the way uh, some of China's policies. I have strong views on some of Australia's policies, by the way, and I think we have a tendency to demonise others sometimes more than perhaps we should. Um, those who hold America up as a beacon and, and demonise China... I think if you change the labels and, and highlighted some of the good things in China and the bad things in America, you might take an alternative view as well. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure we should we should uh, categorise too strongly the, the good and evil, um, you know, George Bushism kind of uh, good guys and bad guys. So, yeah, look, I, I, I wouldn't avoid China. I don't have a large holding in China. I think it's very sovereign risk is very real. Uh, but I, as a passive investment, as part of a passive investment, I wouldn't go out of my way to buy... Emerging markets, ex China or Asia, ex China. If I was going to buy an Asian ETF, I'd include China in it for, for those reasons. That sound reasonable, mate? Yeah, um, but- I want to come back to why it's <laughs> an emerging market. I, I, I was going to go to that next. I kind of I feel as though I am so massively exposed to China anyway mm-hmm. by being an Australian, um, and in fact, even more directly, just just through some of the stocks I hold, actually doing business in China. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's different ways of getting exposure, <laughs> and there's there's uh, yeah. uh, ways of uh, being very difficult. Maybe maybe that's where Tim's coming from. It's like I'm like as an Aussie, I've, I've got there's plenty of there's plenty of uh, <laughs> uh, exposure to China. Do I really want to yeah. buy invest directly yeah. in it? So yeah, but tell us tell us why it's classified as an emerging market. So, well, the first thing is there is no absolute classification for this stuff. It's kind of generally accepted. It's not, there's, not, there's, no, there's no test you have to pass to be either. Uh, people have argued for a long time that it shouldn't be. I think it's hard because it, the emerging market characterization is more about the structure and the components of the market rather than the size. It's possibly big and, and I'll say backward. I don't mean that as a slag, a slag on China, but you could be big and backward, right? China, if it had four billion people, could be the world's largest agrarian economy, you know, and and it would it wouldn't need any more than that to be big just because it's big, mm. and would that, would that be a sophisticated uh, industrial market? No, it would it would be very much a an agrarian primary industry market that happened to have so many people that it was the second largest in the world, and so the answer is the structure, uh, the components, the development of the economy itself. Um, the proportion of, if you remember your high school economics, remember primary, secondary, tertiary and quaternary industries, Andrew? Do you remember mm-hmm, that? I do. High school echo? Yeah. Um, you know, it, the reality is China is very much still an agricultural and manufacturing economy, very little in the way of services, very little in the way of sophisticated um, uh, manufacturing, high-value manufacturing in in proportion to its to it, the rest of its economy. I mean, and so, I, so unlike Australia, which has such a beautiful uh, manufacturing base and high-tech industry, Something I'm like trying that. to be a little bit facetious. <laughs> I know, I can tell. You know, I was just like, well, yeah. you know, I, do, I did actually but hear an economist so argue recently. We have a very recently. large service industry. We have a very large financial mm. uh, industry. We have a very open uh, industrial structure. And when I say industrial, I mean, I don't mean industrial employment. I mean, you know, uh, the, the economy is pretty open. Uh, it, it functions pretty well. The consumer dollar is a large proportion of the economy compared to China's where it's largely infrastructure and government spending driven. So, you know, Australia in 1820 would have been an emerging economy in, in the same way, right? We, we just, we've just developed further. Remember China? China, oh, maybe 50 years ago, 60 years ago now, it's pretty much where Australia was in the early 1800s. So they've come a very long way, but they're probably, and I'm, I'm, no, I'm no industrial economics or, or international economics expert, but my guess is China today is probably closer to Australia of the 30s and 40s maybe than the Australia of the 90s or the 2000s or the 2020s. So, you know, they're, 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 they're emerging incredibly quickly because of some government decisions and population and size and international trade and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, but China is still the world's factory, for example, right? In a way that, and you, your point of it is right about, you know, we don't we don't make much stuff anymore because that's because we kind of advanced past that, right? That's almost the point. Um, China hasn't caught up to that. They are largely agrarian with a big manufacturing base, make most of the stuff that we buy these days. And that's great, but it doesn't. They're not an advanced economy in a in a relative sense. If you compared it with the economies of Greece or Japan or Australia or the US or Finland or pick your pick your economy, New Zealand, um, and that that's largely why. Now, when and where that should change, I have no view on. I don't know what the economists would say, um, but largely that it's the structure of the economy and the advancement of that structure that will determine when it becomes a a developed market in in the economic jargon. Mm, fair enough. Does that seem reasonable? You don't, yeah. you don't sound like you agree. No, 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 it's, no, I, 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 I accept that answer. <laughs> I accept that answer, I like it. I'll go with that. Oh, that's very, very political of you. Here's one, here's one from Lyndon. It's a, it's a long question, but uh, it's an interesting one. Let's go with it. Hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, thank you both for the podcast. It's been instrumental in my investing, especially on the behavioural side of things, but also in understanding the market and picking stocks. I think we've done our job then, mate, if we've been able to tick those three boxes. Mm. I know the message is largely the same week to week, but I always make the time to listen to ensure I get the reminders I need to stay the course and do the work. I said that before, mate, about the, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. It's kind of, it, it's the annual kind of church meeting where everyone goes back to church and remembers all the, the stuff the minister's saying. Um, I, I think, I think Linda might possibly be onto something. Our message doesn't change dramatically week to week, but if we're, if we're, keeping, if we're, if we're speaking from the pulpit of sensible investing and that's helping people, then I guess we're doing our job. Uh, all that remains is for me to call you Reverend Andrew and for you to call me <laughs> Father Scott and we're, and we're done. Um, <laughs> all right, Reverend Andrew, that's got to stick now. Uh, I, I really appreciate that you managed to keep finding new ways to explain the lessons we all need and that I need repeated. So please keep doing as you do. For the record, I'm a share advisor and an Extreme Opportunities member and I'm part of Strawman Premium, which I found through this podcast. There you go, Ram, it's paying dividends already. Cool. My question is a thought experiment. Oh, no. And a bit out on the fringes. Sorry, Scott, involves cryptocurrency. But I thought it might be of interest and I'd really like to hear your take on it. We're always up for a bit of a, uh, a random thought, aren't we, mate? We kind of like this sort of stuff. <laughs> Masters of random thought. <laughs> it's the non-random ones we struggle with. <laughs> First, a bit of background, he says. I was watching a clip where some old economist, I'm going to take that slightly as a, as a criticism, was bagging on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, saying they had no intrinsic value and that they should be backed with gold. After checking, chuckling at the irony of suggesting backing a new technology with one that supersedes, I did start to think about what alternative asset classes you could use and how it could work. Now, eventually, I got to my favourite asset class. So, here comes the sales pitch, mate. Introducing Stonk Coin, a crypto <laughs> token backed by the stock market. This would work almost the same as an ETF index fund, where each Stonk Coin would be backed by stocks held in a fund. Using the ASX 300 as an example, trading a stonk coin could effectively be the same as buying or selling a unit of the Vanguard Australian ETF. Now, big whoop I hear you say, you can now trade an index using crypto instead of on the ASX or CHIX. Just sounds like a regulatory nightmare with no additional benefit. But wait, says Lyndon. Here is my question. Ignoring the issues with ASIC for now, what happens if stonk coin becomes the default currency? That is, assuming the token was on a network that could scale... In terms of transaction speed and volume, for it to become the new legal tender in Australia, the revenues and profits for each company in the ASX 300 would be denominated in stonk coin. But each stonk coin is effectively just a fixed percentage of the overall market, so the market cap on each company in the ASX is just a measure of its proportion of the ASX 300. So what happens to measuring the index as a whole? Is this even possible? Does this create a self-correcting currency, cooling a market when it starts getting too hot or stimulating when it crashes, or does this make these cycles so much worse? Lyndon says, at this point in my thinking, my brain melted and started running out my ears. So I thought I would seek wisdom from a higher source. Please help. What have I created? He says, note, I'm pretty sure the total market cap of the ASX 300 is greater than the circulating supply of dollars M0 and M1, some monetary terms there. So I think there would be enough liquidity, but perhaps not. And that ends the experiment. Hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Assuming this is a rabbit hole you want to venture down. <laughs> Linda, thanks, Lyndon. Lyndon, we love a we love a rabbit hole. We love venturing down. Mate, you you're you're big in the cryptos these days. Are you gonna sell them all and buy Lyndon's donk coin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My brain's melting a bit too. It's um, good, isn't it? I love that's what I liked about it. I do it wonder fun. if we're dividing by zero here. Um yeah. in the sense that you can't have something represent something which itself is predicated on the underlying transactions of that something. So it's also the currency 
mm. but it's tied. I don't actually. I've got to think it through. I don't actually think it works. Mm. Um, Except that if that's also true, then gold couldn't work because gold is dominating dollars. But then gold back to the currency back in the day. So there, there is some. To, to, to Linda's yeah. analogy, there was some. There was some experience where physical the, the currency's value was backed by the amount of gold held in the central bank, and that gold had an theory of value measured in that central currency. So there is there is some precedent for the concept. Mm. The question is, does it is it the right thing? Does it matter? Does it help? Does it make things worse? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we have fiat Good currency, enough. right? We've made that transition away from yeah. the gold standard. It's actually got yes. a few advantages. Yes. Um, it's risks with that as well. I but I do I know a lot of people tend to overinflate that. There's any currency system is just based on trust. So yes, as a thought experiment, yeah, I guess you could, right? Like any as long as people will accept it and recognize it as a store of value and a unit of mm, transaction, mm, then mm. yeah, it, it'll it'll probably work. Yeah. Um it's just the self referencing nature of it that I'm trying to I have the to, same I have the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting experiment. Never gonna happen. Um <laughs> Thank God uh, that's me, but, uh, but about you. Yeah, I've got to say the whole um, the whole crypto thing is such a fascinating. Mm. So there, there's going to be a, like innovation on this kind of stuff, like an ETF kind of thing backed by a token. I can totally see yeah. all that kind of stuff happening. Um, it, it's just it's such a fascinating space. I just think it's going to be like the internet uh, mm. boom 1.0. You know, where it's sort of like huge potential all ends up being largely right but there's a whole bunch of bubbly and frothy and speculative <laughs> BS in the way and there's a whole yeah, big yeah. washout at some point in time and the true value could be, you know, 10, 20 sort of years away. But, geez, it's a fascinating space. Mm. And I won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole further. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I like the idea, mate. I'm, to, to Andrew's point, the self-referencing nature, he, to use his phrase, I think is the, is the biggest challenge. Um, if it's the only currency... I mean, if, if it is a bit, the, the biggest problem for me with crypto right now is it'll only really arrive when people stop converting it to talk about it. If I'd say what a Bitcoin's worth in dollars, then it's it's still that secondary asset class, which is fine. It has a role and it can, it can still do its thing. But it's not going to be the transactional currency until I I think about my income in terms of Bitcoins, uh, how many Bitcoins I earn per hour, rather than what a Bitcoin is worth in dollars and then convert it back. Otherwise, it becomes this kind of secondary kind of, you know, store of value, which is fine. But, but you know, until we, until we all think in... Transactions in crypto—that—that's probably the last nut for it to crack. Mm, Whether it can I or not, very different view. Go on. I disagree a little bit, but it doesn't. It doesn't. I think this is what the argument often has. I when we all start trading in Bitcoin, it doesn't have to I mean like there's there's different currencies all around the world. We could use any different yeah. one. You gave me a hundred dollar US. I mean, I would happily yes. accept it, even though I'd have to convert it. Yes, but you convert it because you know what hundred dollars worth US is worth based on some. If I, if I do 100 Zimbabwean dollars, you may not bother accepting it because when you do the maths, you realise it's only a cent Australian, right? So yeah, but it, if I know what that conversion rate is and there's a lot Correct. of liquidity in that market, I can, I can convert to one, uh, transfer it and convert to another very easily. So that, there's, yes. there's actual value in that, I, I think. Yes. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a case of it's going to... The Australian dollar, the American dollar, all the major world currency, I think, will be around for a long time yet. Mm, mm, mm. So I don't think yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's disrupting that. I think it's a, it's a it's an addition. No, oh, actually, we're, yeah, we're agreeing. That that's my that's my okay. point. Okay. That's what I'm saying. When I say secondary, I guess I mean that one step removed from the transactional day to day base. I'll say currency for the sake of the exercise, mm-hmm. but you know the, the the base thing that we use to 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 do stuff with. Um, but yes, yeah, uh, I don't know how you I don't know how you value shares. Well, you know what's it? It does get self pressing really fast, right? But what it does is it basically it stops shares being valued in dollars. And makes them valued in stonk coins, and to some degree, that stonk coin would have a higher value per stonk coin to the Australian dollar as shares went up in value. Mm-hmm. So it, kind of, it, it wouldn't necessarily be self-reference, but it couldn't be it couldn't be isolated as a self-referencing tool. A bit like I said, the secondary currency is Bitcoin. The, the market measured in stonk coin, except one stonk coin would be worth one stonk coin, and one woolly shares would always be worth one stonk coin. You just have to then realise that one stonk coin is worth more Australian dollars as woolly's profits went up. Does that make sense? So you've always, you've always got to have something to convert it back to to recognise that value. So, so, so gold is measured in ounces and an ounce of gold is always an ounce of gold. Mm. And if gold was measured in gold ounces, that could be fine because one ounce of gold is always one ounce of gold. But the, the dollar value of that ounce of gold goes from 200 to $300 to $400 to $500. And that's how we know what's worth more. So my, my, my point is if you, if, you, if you simply said, hey, we're going we're to talk about share prices in, in a per stonk coin value, in theory, that one stonk coin would simply just be worth more and more Australian dollars as profits got higher as the company was worth more because of that. Mm. Doesn't that have inflationary... <laughs> oh, God. 
This is, this is too <laughs> abstract. This is way it too is. abstract. It is. Should we move on? Yes. All right. Great. Really good question. I love it. And by the way, if you have a view on Lyndon's question, feel free to throw, throw us a line on our socials. I'd love to hear other people's views on that because it's, it's a really, really fun... Probably, probably need a couple of beers each, mate. It's too early in the morning. We're recording this on, uh, <laughs> yeah. on Thursday morning as we, as we want to do. Uh, it's probably too early in the morning for us to have a couple of beers. But I, it's, a, it's a fun, fun idea. You almost said a whiteboard and some... I was going to say a whiteboard and some red string yeah. and... You know, like, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, all of a sudden you're on a TV show. Yeah. Um, here's one from Rob, mate. Hi, Scott. Thanks again for your weekly podcast on both Fridays and Sundays. The discussion between yourself and Andrew is always engaging and enlightening listening. You must be doing the heavy lifting there, mate, because I'm not adding much. <laughs> I wonder what you both think of the future potential of AGL and A2 Milk. And I thought it was a strange combination, but he says, I noticed today that the share price performance of both has been on a similar trajectory over the past year, which can only be summed up as disappointing. Do you think there's an upside for either in the near term, let's say over the next 12 months, given they both appear to be trading at long-term lows? Best regards, Rob. AGL and A2 Milk, I know there's two uh, more different companies on the ASX than those mm. two. Do you have a view on both or either, mate? Not really. Um, AGL has just never appealed to me. Um, it's It's got a lot of structural challenges and even when you look back historically, it's never really sustainably, mm. consistently managed to grow uh, to, any, to any great degree. Um, you know, for example, they're paying mm. uh, 61 cents in dividends uh, 10 years ago and mm-hmm. they're only at 75 cents. So it's very mm-hmm. anemic. It's a very slow, very boring kind of business with not much yeah. upside. And, uh, um, yeah, not, there's, you know, I, I just I kind of think where, where, where is the upside and all the challenges? The market's right to sort of push that one down. So I, I think it's, people are right to sort of go, oh, things are falling, they look more compelling. <laughs> By definition, they are. Yeah, yeah. But there's some cases I think they're falling justifiably, and it's just it's, it's you know it's 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 yeah. it's just a it's a very very hard proposition looking out for that mm-hmm. that business in terms of everything's happening. So pass. Mm-hmm. A two is much more interesting. The real debate here is is to is to what impact the Daigu trade mm. um, comes back comes back strongly. Then we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if that takes longer than it than we think, or or it doesn't come back as strongly as we think. I think that's that's a potential problem. Mm. Um, I've, I've got to say, for me, A2 is such a phenomenal success story, not not the last year or so withstanding. But for my money, it's, it's very much a marketing business and it's one who's got a product with of... I'm always going to upset people when I say this, but of dubious... <laughs> Dubious scientific merit. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. interesting sort of suggestive evidence and that, mm-hmm. but it's, there's 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 no strong uh, case to, as, as to what they do. So it's, it's very much a brand Bitcoin, image recognition. Way. It's like multivitamins or a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, it's just sort of, science yeah. is just not there. Maybe mm-hmm. it will be, but it's but it's not there yet. Um, and I also wonder where the real barriers to entry are there as mm-hmm. well. And we know mm-hmm. that other products, since they had phenomenal success in inventing the category, but um, so many others are. are, 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 are coming into this space as well. So it's just, it's all, it's all too hard basket for me. So I'm, I'm a pass on both. Yeah. Um, fascinating for me, Rob, I don't like AGL anymore than Andrew does. Um, and look, so first thing I will say is you asked about near term 12 months, no idea at all about any company, oh, no including clue. ones I love, like yeah. absolutely no clue. So um, you probably have listened to us long enough to know that um, we, you know, I, I measure my investing horizons in three to five years, preferably more than that. I think I've sold out of, two companies in the last five years, maybe. Uh, I'm super reluctant to sell. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the 12-month guy to ask. Um, so, yeah, anything could happen in the next 12 months. Even if we're right about the long term, the next 12 months could be anything because investors could just simply... In the, in the short term, sentiment drives things, right? So, if all of a sudden AGL sell a compelling story and people love the hell out of it because it's going to go into lithium mining or something, the shares could triple in, you know, in 12 months and who knows. Or they could fall by half in 12 months mm. based purely on sentiment. Um, you know, it just, that's, it's just life. So no idea in the short term. Um, the, the business though is a tough one. It's a commodity business in both energy generation and energy retailing. And commodity businesses very, very, very rarely provide you sufficient incremental profits because they just don't have any pricing power. And if you can find the lowest cost asset, that asset can be super long lasting and you can make slightly more profit than the other guys, then I mean, you'll do okay. But even there, once those, once those 
uh, economics are known, the market will price them accordingly, and future gains won't come because you're not getting incremental growth mm. on that. You kind of you are where you are where you are. And so, as a business, do I think they're running a decent energy business? Yeah, I kind of do. The same as Qantas is running a decent airline, but I wouldn't want to buy. I wouldn't you know? Alan Dress is a great guy, but I'm not buying his airline. Um, you know, he's doing doing his best to, to maximise the value for shareholders. But you know. <laughs> the best thing you do with an airline is keep it in the air. That's the best you can do, right? Mm. Um, so look, no, I don't, don't like AGL. I don't see price, uh, you know, um, I, don't, I don't see profit uh, margins improving meaningfully over any significant period of time. I don't see any reason to believe these guys are going to earn market-beating returns. So I'm, I'm a straight no on that. A2, I used to be like you, Andrew. I still am a little bit. Um, but I think... I, I've, I, I'm a little less polemic than you. I own Blackmore shares as well, so I speak of multivitamins. Mm. Um People love brands for a whole lot of reasons, right? Mm. Uh, there, there's, there, there's I, I would argue, and you may even still disagree, there's more reason to buy Blackmore's vitamins than a Louis Vuitton bag, right? Mm. Like you talk about, talk, about, talk about unproven benefits for, for, for wasted money. Now, whether, whether there's ethical views about what you sell and what you claim is a different question. But my, my point is just that people will buy a whole lot of stuff for reasons other than the, the very rational, functional benefit they get from the product, right? Sure. Um, and so, you know, every car that's not a Toyota Camry is effectively, you know, you know people, oh, it's, it's not the only car buyer, you know what I mean, are people wasting money because they want to feel better, look better, uh, value things more highly than, than purely rationally they arguably should. Um, so I think the A2 business for all of those things is, is still a potentially good business. I have a suspicion, I bought the shares, it turns out too early, and I wasn't trying to time the market, by the way, but they've gone down since. I have a suspicion that the Daigu trade and the kind of, you know, Australia to Asia trade actually improves over the next five and 10 years. And if I'm right, then Blackmore's A, A2 Milk, a couple others are kind of at their nadir when it comes to Daigu Trade. Because guess what? There's no tourists and there's no Chinese students in the country. In 12 or 18 months, will there be more Chinese tourists in Australia than now? By definition, yes. Will there be more Chinese students? By definition, yes. Will that help the Daigu Trade? We don't know, but my suspicion is yes. And if that's true, then sales will start recovering from what is, I think, a reasonably decent baseline now, um, as that as that trade restarts. Now, maybe the Chinese students and, and and tourists don't return for economic or political reasons or for COVID reasons. Maybe they do return, but don't send stuff back. You know, via the Daigu trade. Maybe they do, but they choose different brands. Those are, there's there's lots of potential. I don't know is there. Um, I bought A2 because I believe that the future will be brighter than now. Because I think all the bad news is priced in. I think this is about as bad as it should get. doesn't mean it can't get worse, but it's about as bad as it should get. And so if I, if I balance risk and reward, I think there is upside for the A2 milk share price over the long term, not over 12 months, no idea, but over the next three to five years, I, I expect to make some money on A2, but I could be wrong, entirely wrong. Hmm. Speaking of which, am I wrong to hold that view, Andrew? No, no, and I don't, I don't strongly, I can totally see that scenario playing out. So there's plenty of things I say no to, which I, you know, I think it's your job as an investor really is to say no. So it's not <laughs> as though, oh, you're definitely wrong. And, you know, I certainly yeah. wouldn't short it. Goodness knows. But, but I, I just, I just, mm. I guess I lack the conviction. I've, there's also, and this is probably less rational, but the, the China, China's a harsh mistress. And, mm. and we mentioned Blackmores before. It's another good example. Yeah. But there's heaps of them where they, they get yes. a bit of traction in this phenomenally massive market and we just go, whoa, they, you know, wow, you just capture 2% of that market, you're making squillions. Mm. But it just, it so often doesn't play out, whether it's Treasury Wines, whether it's Blackmores, whether it's now A2 Milk, mm. whether it's, they just, they just um, so often don't play out. And, it, and it's kind of like all of the business, right? Like mm -hmm. I know they sell stuff locally and elsewhere, but it's just, it's so fundamentally vital to it. And I just, I can't firmly gra grab hold of that and go, oh, no, it's absolutely fine. Things are going to go back to normal and then from strength to strength to strength. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the whole situation with A2 is kind of predicated. It was launched at the right time, in the right place. There was that infant milk scare formula for mm -hmm. locally produced stuff. Yep. Australia yep. has great reputation for clean and green. This new product came on. It just it just hit all the socials and which is, it was in the zeitgeist and mothers groups were recommended. Everything just sort of went right. But it's also there are there's a lot of uh, you know we know what consumers are like they're they're, they're fickle and what's the mm, next mm. Uh, baby formula problem? <laughs> there's no shortage of competition <laughs> there that front by the way even clean and green and stuff from New Zealand and elsewhere it just I I just I, I struggled they're just they're just incredible marketers and they've done such a brilliant job and I may really do congratulate I think they'll probably be around for a while but just 
the, the, the growth that they had generated, the trajectory that they were wrong, I just wonder how quickly they get back to that and, mm. and note that if they don't, there's just a lot of downside. So that for me, that That's just means true. it's too hard basket. So it's not, yep. it's not that I think you're wrong. I just, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm, I've gotten more comfortable as I've gotten older to be, to with that. <laughs> it's a really great phrase, just in life Isn't in it? general. Um, Isn't it? That's something I'm trying to teach my kids. It's just cool not yeah. to know. You don't have to know. It's okay. Yeah. In fact, saying I don't know is just the start of the dawning of, of the learning process, right? So just and, – and I don't know <laughs> so, <laughs> when it comes out I, to no, it. I, mate, I think you do. I, I've, I've said something similar before. I And look, honestly, in, in most jobs, in most parts of life, you're kind of obliged to know or you're supposed to know or people – honestly, in our job, I don't, I don't know many people other than you and I, or as in companies, strongly the like the fool, whose people will say, I don't know, and leave it at that. Mm. You know, if, you a, if a chief economist asks, asking you. <laughs> well, <laughs> you there, there is that. But, know. but, you know, if, if chief economists are asked of you, they give a forecast on the economy. Mm. It's the old John, John Kenneth Galbraith line, right? Pundits don't forecast because they know, but because they're asked. Yeah. And it's hard when you're sitting in front of a journal, particularly on TV or radio, to say, I don't know. But, yeah. and, they're like, and it's almost that, like, they look at you like, but but you're supposed to have a view, like supposed mm. to know, like don't you know? How do you not know? Mm. Um, and having the freedom to say I don't know is actually a really really freeing thing. Uh, obviously, having freedom is freeing. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a very freeing thing to be able to say I don't know and leave it at that, or, or explain it. But you know, rather than have to pretend you've got a view on this stuff or, and and a, and a strongly thought through view, mm. um, I, we, you, I'm sure you get asked all the time. Where's the ATX going to be by Christmas? I don't know. <laughs> What's going on the market tomorrow? Ever. I don't yeah. know. We just, we just had a question from you know from Rob. You know, what's A2 looking to do in the next 12 months? I could have said, oh, well, mate, I think it'll probably be up about oh, maybe 10 or 20%. I don't, it, would have been a, it would have been an absolute guess mm. made up, and I could have said it, mm. and people would have nodded their head and gone, oh, that's good to know. Thanks, Scott. I don't know. Mm. And I'm, so I'm going to say it. It's a, it's a nice thing as you say, mate. And it's a great thing you're teaching your kids, by the way. I will make a mental note to double that down on that with my son because it's, it's a good advice. Mate, last question from Raj before we kick off for the end of the weekend. We go back to our families and do whatever we're doing. Uh, Raj says, enjoy your podcast, Scott and Andrew. Great work. Thank you, Raj. Question for the mailbag extra. And this is this is from a late September, but the, the, the question, so it's, he talks about some of the data on that day, but the, the same idea applies. The S&P 500 fell 2% overnight, but the ASX IVV ETF, which is basically an S&P 500 ETF, only fell 0.8% on the ASX. So 2% for the S&P, the equivalent ETF fell only 0.8%. My question is, how correlated ETFs overseas are to their relevant markets? Or would they also have a, had a shocker day if the ASX is having a bad day? Mind you, 50% of the ASX is financial and material, so somewhat less diversified as compared to other markets. Please, says Raj, shed some light on this. Now, Andrew, we say an ASX, sorry, S&P 500 ETF is tracking the 500 companies in the ASX, or the S&P, and in theory, if those companies fell 2% as a group, the ETF that tracks their share prices, if you do the maths, well, it should be the same, right? Mm-hmm. What What is Raj missing? What is going on between those two numbers? Well, there's there's the FX translation. So, you know, one's priced in US dollars, the other in Aussie dollars. So if the currency moves, there'll, there'll be that impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, you know, it's not a it's not a perfect emulation. There are market makers here that have to keep keep the prices sort of right, and this sort of arbitration mm-hmm. going on that sort of seeks to sort of make sure it does match up pretty well over time. But mm-hmm. but I would, you know, daily ETF movements. <laughs> I, there's there's very few things I care less about. Um, it, it, it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things that you will find if you bring up a chart of the S and P five hundred and an ASX listed. Uh, S&P 500 ETF over a broad enough time frame, they'll pretty much do the same mm. thing. There'll be some differences due to currency and some of those other, yep. but they're pretty much going to not, they're, they're very, they're very much the same bet. <laughs> um, yep. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Even though you might notice differences that look pretty material on a very, very, very short term basis, it's, it's going to match up pretty well. Mm. Right. Yep. I agree. That, that's, that's, so I think the question is right. The question from Raj is basically, Hey, if they're different on a day, how, how much different are they going to be over a week or a month or a year? What's actually going on? And Raj, to, to Andrew's point, the key the key thing here is don't don't worry about it. Um, they will largely match over over extended periods of time. So this is not one of those cases where a day a day's gap becomes a bigger on day two, a bigger on day seven, a bigger on day thirty, and bigger on day three hundred sixty five. Um, if anything, they actually kind of end up merging back to each other over those periods of time. As Andrew already said, the the currency is part of the story. The other part of the story is the futures. So an ETF provider isn't oh, yes. supposed to just track the actual price, but the fair value of those assets. And they can be different things. 
So once the US market closes, let's let's say in a, in a horrible example, um, I'll use I'll use the 9/11 uh, tax uh, not not lightly. Um, the US market would have closed on the day before the attacks. Um, the attacks that happened that morning might have been during market time. It doesn't. I don't know for sure. It, it, for for an ETF provider to say, well, the shares in the airlines closed at $100 yesterday when the market closed. Sure, something's happened in the meantime. Sure, the US futures have gone through the floor, but we're going to pretend that American Airlines still trades at the same price. Um, now, that's a, it's, a, it's a very specific example, an extreme example, and I don't use the, the terrorism example lightly. Um, I'm, not, I'm not being flipping it at all. It's just a, it's a simpler example to use. So the, 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 the more normal, um, normal times version of that is the US futures effectively begin trading as soon as the US market closes. And futures trade effectively 24 hours a day. So between the close of the US market there and the reopening, so overnight, our time, or very early this morning, they closed. Um, oh, this morning, because it's Sunday, I knew that. It's not really Thursday. We're not really recording this two days early. Uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, well, sorry, tomorrow, because it's um, <laughs> the US market won't trade tonight either. Uh, but on a normal day, the US market closes at, say, 6 a.m. Australian Eastern time, roughly. I think it might be about that. Um, and thereafter, the futures trade. And so for the following, well, I guess 10 hours between 6 a.m. and 4 p.m. our time, our market closes, uh, the market should reflect, the ETF should reflect the, the, the fair value as represented by the futures of that of that ETF. And so there's SP 500 futures. Um, for example, last night, the US futures were down about, I think, eight-tenths of 1%, I think, at about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock last night. Um, so, yeah, the, the SP 500 was worth if you could you could literally trade it by the by the shares by the futures right then at one percent less than what it was when it closed and so the etf providers are supposed to to uh, to cover that as well so that's why you'll see differences also why as andrew says they they snap back to normal uh because the daily gains will reflect yesterday's futures plus today's gains plus tomorrow's futures and so on and so forth mm-hmm. so net net they, they net out the longer this goes for the more likely it is that they will be almost exactly the same you can look at the long-term track record of the ETF, you go to that uh, IVV, I think, is it a beta shares product? I can't remember. Um, it might be iShares. If you go to that website anyway, they will show you the the one, three, five, ten year and since inception returns of those versus the index they're trying to track. And you'll see it's really, really, really close. So um, that, that's the reason why. It's a good question. It doesn't need to matter. This is one of those things. I think we answer these questions, but always try and add at the end. It doesn't matter. So I get that people are just curious about it and they do wonder, you know, it's a bit like, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm lazy with the little things, maybe I'm lazy with the big things. And so these little chinks in the armor do make people wonder, hang on, am I really getting what I want with the ETF? Am I, do I really know what I'm buying? And in this case, mate, yes, absolutely. Um, the These guys are supposed to track the, the value of the ETF, the, the index, not just the last closed price. And that's the difference. Plus, as Andrew says, the currency, which adds an extra bit of a, a bit of uh, challenge to the numbers. So the change in the dollar plus the change in the futures will almost certainly, roughly, but, but pretty closely, match the ETF value. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think we're done. Done. I've given you our socials. You know what they all are, but check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Andrew, you're not on TikTok yet, are you? Nope. I live in hope, just so I can <laughs> poke fun. Until next week, we'll be back on Wednesday with Stock of the Week. Andrew and I will be back on Friday with another Motley Fool Money episode, and, of course, this time next week, hopefully with some of your audio questions for our very special mailbag edition. Until then, full on. Bye. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.